And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated, entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I invite you to join with me in prayer as we prepare to consider this quite famous story uh, more deeply. Would you pray with me? Father, I... Uh, we think of the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church when he prayed that uh, we would be given the power to be able to grasp the height and width and breadth and depth 
of the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled. Lord, that is our prayer for us. Lord, would you please, as we hear your word, give us the power by your spirit to grasp the reality of your love that we may be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, last week, began a series that's going to take us for much of the fall on love. And as we are thinking about love, we are thinking about something that is both really important and really difficult. It's really important. Uh, Many of us know the story of how a person came to Jesus, and it seems like he was a faithful Israelite who wanted to understand God's law more clearly. He had been pondering the different commandments, and he comes to Jesus and he asks, what is the great commandment. In essence, he's asking for like a too long, didn't read of God's law. Like if there is one summary statement of what God asks of us, what is it? Is there a central command in all of the law? And Jesus says, yes, there is. It's love. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else, and Scripture repeats this again and again in the New Testament, every law that God has ever given is about this. It's about love. Every instruction is a different instruction teaching us how to love. Ultimately, if we understand this, we understand what God asks of us. And if we don't have this, if we get everything right, if we do everything with giftedness, if we follow the rules, but we don't have love, we have nothing. Which is incredibly helpful, I think, because Oftentimes we're told that if we want to grow in an area, it's better to have one focal point rather than like 17. And if you're looking for one focal point about what it means to grow as a Christian, this is the one to focus on. How do I love? But as clarifying as it is, because it is so important, it is always hard too. I mean, just being practical for a moment, just think maybe the last two or three days, your interaction with people, maybe family members, maybe friends, can you think of times where you have felt frustrated, misunderstood, taken for granted, where you found yourself in a, a, in a difficult conversation? Or, or maybe there are people that you know that you've intentionally kind of kept at arm's length because they are so difficult, or maybe there are situations where you knew this was an opportunity to do something for someone, and you pulled back. In each of these, we're talking about what it looks like to love. And in the day-to-day existence, we find love is hard. Our our world is not good at love. I mean, all all we need to do is think through all of the the broken families that we know of, the, the broken relationships of friendships that we know of, each of these in some way or another has been a a failure of love. It's striking if you think about it that we have progressed so much. We now in a small phone can have more computing power than it used to take entire buildings to hold. We, We have cured so many diseases that were ravaging others. We've mapped the human genome, but have we gotten any better at love? than we were two generations before, or or four generations before. Love is hard. Now, we considered both of these truths uh, last week, the 
the importance of love and the difficulty of love, but there was one other thing that we considered that really is kind of the thing that sets the trajectory for this series, and that is that if you are in Christ, that is, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have an incredible capacity to grow in love because God has given you the Holy Spirit. There are ways that you can progress. There are ways that you can train yourself. You are instructed by Scripture to pursue love. That's a hopeful statement. But the question, of course, is how? How is it if we think that love is so important and yet so difficult and we have this call to grow, how do we train ourselves that we can become more and more loving? And that's what we're especially going to be focusing on in the next couple of weeks. And here's where we're going to go, and it might not seem like the obvious direction, but I'm convinced as I've studied Scripture, it's really where Scripture calls us. If we want to grow in love towards each other, we have to focus on our relationship with our Father. To get right with others, first and foremost, we need to be made right with God. It is this vertical relationship with our Creator that actually fuels our ability to love everyone else. And so this morning, the simple take-home is this. We will grow in love as we move from fear to faith in the love of God. You and I will grow in love as we move from fear to faith in the love of God. And the place that I want us to see this in is the the very famous parable that we just read, the parable of the prodigal son. Probably many of us have heard this story before. It's a story of a man with two sons. One is the older, respectful, hardworking, faithful son. And then there's the younger son who is not respectful, who at some point growing up, seems to have just had a disconnect with his parents. Because the moment he can, when he gets to his kind of age of independence, he says, I want out. Give me all my inheritance right now. I'm leaving. Which is incredibly insulting. It's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You're not. So could you at least treat me like you were? And I'm out of here. And so he leaves. And we know the story. He, he, he parties like it's, there's no tomorrow. He spends his money on all sorts of things, whether it's on alcohol, prostitutes. It is not well spent. And it's lazy. And it's just a matter of time before he completely runs out. And eventually he hits rock bottom. And, and at that point, he concludes... I should go back home. And he does. And when he's going, he is not assuming he's going to be well-received. He's just hoping that he might be welcomed back as a servant, because even that would be better than the life he's experiencing. But to his great surprise, his father is actually waiting for him. His father runs out to him. His father embraces him. He gives him a cloak. He says, let's celebrate That fattened calf, the great treasure that our house has had for so long, this is the time to slaughter it and to eat it. And there is a party and there's celebration. Now this is the part of the story, if you've heard the parable of the prodigal son before, this is probably the part that you've most focused on. It's at least when people retell it, the part of the story that people really pay attention to. But, but more careful readers of this parable, while that's an incredibly important part of the story, more careful readers will tell you that that's actually not Jesus' focus. Jesus' focus is on the story of the older brother, who, who suddenly re-enters the picture right in this moment. So the older brother has been out in the field working hard because that's what the older brother does. 
And as he starts coming home tired, he hears the sound of, of music, of, of, of dancing and celebration. And then he smells the sm smell of beef cooking. And beef, this is an incredibly unusual delicacy. It's a rare thing. And he's wondering what's going on. And so we read that he, he speaks to one of the servants and asks, you know, what these things meant. And the servant says to him, well, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And at this, the older brother is absolutely incensed. I mean, we see the response. But he was angry. And he refused to go in. And that might not seem like that big of a deal, but it was. That refusal is, is making a statement. See, in that day, whenever there was a celebration, especially a big one like this, where probably the whole town was welcomed, the eldest had a specific responsibility. He was supposed to be kind of like the, the number two in charge of welcoming people. He was supposed to work the room, make people feel at home, make sure that there was enough food and drink for everyone. And what is he doing? He is not there. He is, if this is the house, he is here, back turned, arms crossed. Anytime someone might be coming, he's not even speaking to them. He is wanting to make everyone know that he's going to have no part of this celebration. It, probably the, the closest analogy I can think of, imagine, imagine a wedding, and, and the bride in her dress and, and her father comes down the aisle, and just before the minister speaks, the best man steps forward, looks right at the groom and the bride, and walks right by them saying not a word and leaving the church in protest. That's, that's the kind of thing that is going on with this older brother refusing to enter in. This is a culture where shame and honor are almost everything, and he is shaming them. I mean, he's shaming his brother by saying, I am not going to treat him like part of my family. Perhaps you even noticed when the father is speaking to the brother, he says in verse 30, when this son of yours came back, not when my brother, when your son, he is not mine. And, and not only is he shaming his, his brother, he's shaming his father. His father has made this decision to welcome him home, and by this person refusing, he is saying, I do not recognize your authority, I do not recognize you as my father, I refuse to be a part of this. Now, why am I zeroing in on this, this point? Because in this story, Jesus, I believe, is intentionally contrasting the response of the father to the response of the older brother. In verse 20, it says that when the, the younger brother comes, the father sees and he feels compassion. It's a decidedly loving response. He looks and he loves. But then verse 28, when the son hears about his brother, he feels what? Anger. A refusal to welcome. There's a contrast between one who is so deeply loving and one who is so deeply unloving. And I think the question that we are meant to be asking, that Jesus wants us to ask, is why? Why is it that, that even... Even when the father comes out 
and, and humbles himself. Because that's what he's doing. When he comes out to tell the, the son to come back in, he is humbling himself. He's, he's taking away his dignity. He is pleading, please come back. Why is the son absolutely refusing to love? Now, I think in this moment, when when the father and the son are interacting, we, we get a bit of the insight. Why is it that the son is responding as he does? Well, here's his answer. So it says, his father came out and entreated him. His father in love longed to ask for him to come back, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you, do you hear what's going on? I mean, there's, there's multiple levels, aren't there? There's, there's clearly jealousy. I have never even gotten a young goat, and now the fattened calf? Why? But I think the older son would say, it's not, it's not just a jealousy issue. It's a justice issue. It would be one thing if my younger brother and I were both hard workers and both respectful and both doing things right, then I would understand why he'd be being made a big deal of sometimes. But that's not what's happened. He spent all of his money on prostitutes. That was our family fortune that he just took and squandered, and now you're just welcoming back? And actually, the very most valuable thing we have, this fattened calf, now you're going to just splurge it on him? Do you see where the older brother is coming from? It kind of makes sense. And yet, the father sees through this. When you look at the father's response, you realize that when the father hears the son, he concludes this is not ultimately about justice. This is about how you understand your relationship to me. He says to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The father understands that's not actually how the son views the relationship. The way that the son is speaking shows that somewhere along the line, maybe from his youngest days, he concluded that he wanted good things from his father. And he was going to do everything he could to make sure that he could get those good things. He was going to work hard, he was going to be obedient, and he was going to make it so that the father had to give him these things. Do you see that idea of like, I have worked so hard and you've never even given me a young goat. The implication is, if I work and I work and I work, then, then that will make you. You'll have to do it. He was, he was seeking to, to obligate the father. You know, that's, that's not an uncommon way of, of responding to this feeling that we have that this world is not a very safe place, that we see that some people don't get good things and some people do. And so what we conclude is that the way to make sure that things are going to be okay for us is if we do well. 
If I, I'm just good enough, work hard enough, then, then God will bless me. Or, or maybe it's the secular version. If we just work hard and work well, good things will come to us. This is, this is a common way of seeing things. And you can see why how the, the son is going to be feeling more and more resentful because he's working and he's working and he's working and he's not even getting the fattened calf. He's not even getting a goat. But what I want us to understand is that beneath this, beneath this way of responding to the world is fear. Right? There's this fear. If, if I, I... I don't want to have bad things happen to me, so what can I do to make sure that my life is going to be okay? Here's the way that I do it. I'm going to make sure that if I do good things, then good things have to happen to me. That's how I can make sense of the world. That's how I can feel safe, believing that if I just work hard enough, I won't be like that person over there who's suffering. I will get good things. It's a response to fear. Do you see that? And so, so this son, not only is he feeling resentful when he's working and working and working, and, and, and probably even fearful. If I keep on working, I'm still not getting this goat. Will my father ever give me good things? But can you imagine how this moment completely undoes him? His whole life, the way he has of dealing with the anxiety of things not going well, is built on the idea that good things happen to people who do good, and bad things happen to people who do bad. And now... His brother comes, who has done really bad, and yet bad things aren't happening to him. He, he is receiving good. And it completely doesn't make sense. In fact, for this brother to be able to receive his younger brother and accept grace, he would have to let go of this idea that the way that the universe works is good to good and bad to bad. He would have to let go of the thing that has given him stability and the sense of fear, and, and he cannot do it. Let me say, this is, this is always the way it works when we have that mindset of believing that what we do leads to what happens to us. There's no room for grace. So if for you, what good looks like is, is the, the good person is the hard worker. The hard worker always is going to get a better life. Then when we see someone else who, who seems lazy to us, we're just going to be impatient with them. It's going to be their fault for any bad thing that happens to them. Or for you, it's really important to be well thought out and to be intelligent. You are going to look down on the person who seems like an idiot to you. Or, or if for us... It's morality. We're going to find ourselves just really bothered when we hear someone using bad language. Or for us, it's tolerance. Then we are going to look so down on the intolerant. Because for us, deep down, there's a feeling that this is how it has to be. If you are good by my definition, then good will happen. If you're not, you deserve whatever's coming to you. There is no room for grace. Because this is how fear works. Fear and love are, are fundamentally incompatible with each other. 
wherever we have fear or wherever we have erected some sort of response to fear, it will choke love. I mean, just, just think about that in, in, in daily life. We see it all the time. When you are stressed out about finances, are you more generous or less generous? When things feel just so busy and scattered, how good are you at paying attention to someone who, deserves, who asks for your time? Or, or say it's just a normal day of the week, but things are crazy and you're just feeling all kind of stressed out and anxious. Are you more patient and kind or less patient and kind? We know the answer, right? How, what do we see? We see that fear and love are at battle with each other and that fear chokes out love. It was because the older brother has this whole way of responding to fear of not getting things from his father that he has built up this thing and he has no space for showing generosity or love to his younger brother. And that's how we are too. I invite you again to think through those areas in your life where love is the most difficult for you. Do you find yourself fairly critical of other people? impatient with other people's faults, looking down on others if you really admit it to yourself. Well, I want to ask you to think, are you really like the older brother? Have you found security in the idea that the good things will happen to you if you do things well? That's a response of fear. Or maybe that's actually not the way that you are wired. Maybe if you're honest, you don't really pay that much attention to other people at all because you're so absorbed with your own life. And I would suggest that maybe that means that at some point in your life, you concluded that the only way that good things can happen for you is if you fight for it. So you need to make sure all of your attention is focused on your well-being. That's a response of fear. Or maybe in in, in your marriage, you find yourself feeling consistently resentful and angry. But if you really are honest with yourself, it's because you're afraid that your spouse is never going to understand you and might never really love you. It's a response of fear. And that fear chokes. It chokes our love. We've asked the question, how do we grow in love? We're called to pursue love. And I think as we just think about this, we're seeing part of the answer, right? For us to be able to grow in love, we need to deal with our fear. But how? Because it's, it's, it's helpful, I suppose, for us to do what we've just been doing and to start thinking and start realizing if we really drill deep, we see fear a lot of times keeping us from being loving. But once we figure that out, what next? Like, have you ever tried to tell yourself when you realize, okay, I'm being stressed out, I'm being anxious, stop being stressed out. Like, how does that work for you? Right? It, like, you know, like that, you can't just will it away. So how, if we need to deal with our fear, how do we do that? The answer is that we need to find an answer for our fear, right? The answer is that we need to hear the gospel. Isn't that exactly where the Father takes it? 
I mean, listen again to what the Father says as, as he recognizes, as he sees his son clearly, and as he realizes the way that his son has erected this whole edifice of how he deals with things, how he deals with fear by believing it's all about earning. He, he says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you hear how he's answering fear? you don't need to earn anything that I have. You're, you're not my slave. You're not my employee. You're my son, and I love you. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. All this time, the son has been fighting for, has been striving for, has been seeking to earn something that is already his. Because he's already loved. Can you imagine how if, if he could have grasped that, if he could have understood this reality and just had this confidence and this awareness and this security, I am loved by my father and all of this is mine, how would he have dealt with his younger brother differently? Don't you think he would have responded in, in kindness and in welcome? And, and the father is, is entreating him. He's saying, please understand, understand that I love you so that you can come back and, and join us in the feast. That's the great tragedy of the story, isn't it? The very thing that the son is holding on to because he desperately thinks this is the way to have good things is the thing that's keeping him from experiencing the good things. The thing that he's holding on to is keeping him from experiencing the love of the Father. And that's the tragedy, I think, that this parable is exposing for us. How many children of God throughout the world live day in, day out as if they are slaves, as if they are employees, as if they have to fight and fight to get God's attention and God's good things for them when the whole time they are children of God, loved by the Father, and everything that God has is theirs. Because the truth is, when you place your faith in Christ, something absolutely extraordinary happens. It's, it's more than even that we are forgiven, although we are. The Bible says we are adopted. We now belong to the family of God where God is our Father who says to us, Son, Daughter. In fact, so significant is that that when God gives us the Holy Spirit in that moment, do you know how the Spirit is described? He is the Spirit of of adoption. So Paul says, you did not receive, when you became a Christian, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is not about fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you, do you understand? This is saying that the Spirit is speaking to you. If you are a Christian, the Spirit is calling you. The Spirit is telling you, yes, call God Father and know that you can because He really is. 
Yes, even though you don't believe it, you are a child of God, and you are loved. Do you think of the Holy Spirit that way, that the very Spirit of God is in your soul so that you can become convinced that you are a child? That's saying something. What that says is that you and I have such a hard time believing this. We have, we have such a hard time grasping the reality that we are loved by God because we are so afraid. We so hold on to our own way of dealing with the things that we're afraid of that it keeps us from really trusting God when God says, I'm your father and I love you. Even when God humbles himself, when he comes out to us, when he becomes one of us, when he even goes to the cross to show how deeply he loves us, we still don't believe it until the Spirit says it's true. Do you, do you hear the Spirit speaking to your heart, telling you, yes, in Christ, you are a child of God. And just as deeply as the father rejoices and celebrates, when the prodigal son comes back, he rejoices and celebrates over you. You are loved. And he says to you, I am always with you, and you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. God holds nothing back in his love for you. He is committed to pouring out every good thing for you. We don't feel it sometimes because we feel the disappointment in life and we feel the, the suffering in life. And, and that's because we are in a broken world and we are broken people and the process of moving from brokenness to wholeness is always painful. But underneath this process is a father who is working every good thing for his children. On the last day, as we look back and are able to see things clearly in a way that we can't in the middle of it, we will realize that day after day, our story is a story of our Father being generous and giving and giving and giving in love. Do you hear the Spirit crying out to your heart, you are a child of God and you are loved? Because when we do, when we begin to comprehend that everything that God has is ours, it frees us. I mean, oh, just to take that reality in can free us from pettiness and judgmentalism and self-protection. To grasp this reality frees us from fear. And as it frees us from fear, it frees us to love. We asked the question near the very beginning, how? How do we grow in love as believers? And here we see part of the answer. You grow in love as you move from fear to faith in the reality of the love of God. Paul, I, I quoted this prayer actually when I was praying, but I'll quote it again. Paul prays for the Ephesian church, what I pray for us, including myself. He, he prays, may you have power in your inner being to be able to grasp the height and the width 
and the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ. And he says, when you grasp this, you will be full. You will be filled with the fullness of God. I invite us even now to take a moment to, to confess where we have been fearful, where we have not trusted God, and, and to grab hold, ask God to show us, to deepen our awareness of the depth of his love for him. And I'll lead us in prayer in a minute or two. Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. But we confess as we look at our lives, as we see how we live, that we have not trusted your love as you deserve. We have sinned against you with our own self-protectiveness, our selfishness, our judgmentalism. Lord, please forgive us. Forgive us from turning away from your love. And Father, we pray, knowing that you have given your spirit, knowing that in Christ we are forgiven and your spirit is the spirit of sonship crying out to our hearts, would you please cry out to our hearts by your spirit that we might hear and know your love and be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Colossians. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, you are forgiven. Thanks be to God.